once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What if we viewed God as a fully committed partner in our success, instead of a judge waiting for us to fail? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Joseph, God's Prevailing Goodness, with this sermon entitled The Power of Presence, which covers Genesis chapter 39. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 39, 6 to 23. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day... When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, And as soon as I heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house." As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this was the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Father, you give us the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Come down, we pray, and feed your people who are gathered, and who hunger and thirst for your word. Amen. Have you ever done something that had someone else not been with you, you wouldn't have done it? I would suspect that immediately something comes to mind. And it may be positive. I did something that was of great risk or fear that was in a good, beneficial way, or perhaps maybe it was negative. You know, and the consequences came with it. The very first memory that popped in my mind when I considered that question earlier this week, the very first memory was when I was in high school and uh, my best friend was with me and we were hanging out. We got a call from a guy that said, hey, come hang out over here. And uh, long story short, we ended up around a table 
with a group of guys as drugs were being passed around. And uh, my friend and I were seeking to walk with Jesus or at least give that appearance. And so we, um, we resisted. We didn't partake, but we have told ourselves, each other, many times over the years, had you not been with me, would I have been able to resist? And it occurs to me that through the presence of another, we can be compelled to exercise and display uncommon behavior. And again, that could be in a positive direction or a not-so-positive direction. But through the presence of another, we can be compelled to display uncommon behavior. Now, for the context of this Sunday and for where we're going to be in this chapter of Genesis 39, the application isn't so much how true that is, although it certainly is true, for us in human relationships and how we need each other. We desperately need one another. The Bible speaks a great deal about this. But where we're going to apply it this morning is actually even uh, perhaps even more significantly in the spiritual reality of the presence of God with us. See, here's, here's really where we're headed. We often give in to temptation, to sin, because we don't realize, nor do we appropriate. That's key. We don't realize, nor do we appropriate the power of God who is with us. Talked about this a little bit last week. Caleb alluded as we walked through Uh, Genesis 37, that really the question was, where is God in Genesis 37 as we're introduced to the story of Joseph? And the answer is, well, he's with us, Emmanuel, God with us. But do we realize and do we appropriate what that means? If, If I were to sum up in one sentence kind of the big idea of this morning's text, it would be this. The presence of God empowers his people to run the race of righteousness in the onslaught of temptation. And that's a word that feels a little dramatic, I, I know. But I think it's the appropriate word. In the onslaught of temptation. If you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, if you've sought to, to be obedient to him, you know how challenging it can be. You know how hard it is and how temptation seems to be at every turn and in every door. It's always there, persistent, relentless. And you know how hard it can be to walk with Jesus in an obedient way. Before we get into Genesis 39, though, you, if you were with us last week, may be connecting some dots here in the sense of going, wait, hold on. Genesis 37 last week, Genesis 39 this week. Why are we skipping a chapter? Well, uh, I'm going to tell you about what we're skipping because it's significant. We're not skipping it because it's insignificant, but because it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. If you're reading from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, the whole narrative of Joseph, this chapter, chapter 38, doesn't seem to fit. The end of 37, Joseph Joseph is being shipped off, uh, being led off into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. Beginning of chapter 39, it picks up there, right there with Joseph in Egypt and in Potiphar's house. But in between, there's this story this parenthetical caveat about one of Joseph's older brothers, Judah, and this young woman named Tamar. And just briefly, I'll tell you why it's there, because it doesn't seem to fit at all. And, and I'm telling you, it's, it's one of those stories where as you're reading it, you have to double check that you're still reading the Bible because it's so risque. 
It's, it's TVMA. It's, it's one of those that you go, is, is this okay for me to read in God's holy word? Because who is Judah? Judah is one of the older brothers of, of Joseph, and he's been incredibly judgmental so far and hate, hateful of Joseph, but it gets worse because what we're told in this story is that he's full of lust and he gives in to temptation at every turn. He's not a good man. He's actually walking more in the footsteps, not of his heavenly father, but of his father, Jacob. He's a bit of a scoundrel. He's not a godly man in any way. And the short of the story is this. He, he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. I told you, TVMA. He sleeps with his daughter-in-law, but she tricks him into doing so. And the fruit of the womb, literally, are two sons. Part of the reason that this story is here, there's many implications to it. One being that we're going to watch Judah as kind of a sub-story of Joseph. And you may know that Judah ends up being a prominent name throughout the history of Israel. In fact, when the, when the kingdoms are split, there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is known as Judah. And so we're going to watch, even in the story of Joseph, we're going to watch some significant life and heart change happen with Judah as well. So as we stick with the story, you'll see that. But another reason why the story is there is because one of the sons that he has with his daughter-in-law is Perez. You go, okay, cool. Well, who is Perez? Well, Perez is the great, 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 can't remember how many great grandfathers of David. And who is David? David is the great, 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 many greats grandfather of Jesus. In other words, God is showing us that the line of Christ, the lineage from which he comes, is a messed up, marred, wicked, skewed history. As if to whisper, even in this text, even in Genesis 38, the promised one who's going to come from this line right here, he came to save people just like that. He came to save and rescue and cleanse from sin the Judas and the Tamars of the world. He came to save and to rescue from sin people just like you and me. Then we start in Genesis 39, and we pick, off where, pick up where Genesis 37 left off. Listen to these first three verses right off the bat. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt in Potiphar. An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Had, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. I'm going to give you four observations from this whole chapter. Here's the first one. The presence of God is the theme of Joseph's story. The presence of God is the theme of Joseph's story. Remember, last week we were asking the question, where is God? Because in the entire chapter, introducing us to Joseph in this whole amazing story, God's name is not mentioned once. And it's very obviously and painfully lacking. It's, it's, it's absent. Because here's Joseph, who at the hands of a very hateful people, but Joseph himself being a 17-year-old punk who's rubbing it in the face that he's having these dreams, and the, he's the favorite one of Jacob, but not only Jacob, but of God himself. And they want to kill him, but then they decide last minute, let's not kill him, let's sell him, let's throw him in a pit. And they're so hard-hearted that even as they throw him into the pit, we learn later on in one of the later chapters that we'll study that Joseph was screaming out, crying, 
save me, save me, save me, and they're eating lunch. And then he's sold into slavery, he ends up in Egypt, this foreign land known for being hard taskmasters. Where is God? Well, as we pick the story back up in this chapter, in chapter 39, very quickly and very repetitively, it tells us God was with Joseph. Genesis 37, God's name wasn't mentioned once. In this chapter, it's mentioned seven times. All at the beginning and the end of the story. We call that an inclusio, where at the beginning and the end, God is reminding us, the narrator by way of repetition is saying, God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. Seven times. To remind us that the hero of the story is not Joseph. We're going to be tempted to believe that as we continue in the story. But the hero is not Joseph. The hero is God himself. The second thing, though, that I want you to make sure you see is that not only is God's presence the theme of the story, but there's a power at work in the story. And it's the power of temptation. The power of temptation is often felt in its persistence. It's the second thing I want you to notice. And, and you get into the story and you realize everything was, was beginning to turn for Joseph it was bad. It was really bad. He was sold into slavery, but he's been purchased by this guy named Potiphar. And now he's a slave of Potiphar. But this is not all bad because God, with, who was with him, has caused Joseph to have great favor in Potiphar's house. And there's even some subtext indication here that, that Potiphar really likes, perhaps even loves Joseph so much so because he's given him his entire household to run. He's, do, he's going out and doing whatever he wants to do because he trusts Joseph, and everything seems to be turning for Joseph. Okay, things were horrible, now they're turning good, until Potiphar's wife shows up. And Potiphar's wife comes after Joseph. It tells us in the text that he's a handsome young man. And she comes after him, and she is persistent. She is relentless. It says in the text that she cast her eyes on Joseph. That literally means to look at with desire. She beckons him over and over again. Lie with me, the text tells us. Lie with me. One of the commentators com commented on this, on this verse that that expression is never used in the Bible in relation to marriage. In other words, as this commentator said, it, it, it's an expression that portrays brutish lust. Potiphar's wife is playing at the very carnal essence of humanity. She is throwing herself at Joseph, and she's doing it with her words. We don't know for sure, but we can assume that she's doing it also physically with her body. And it's not just once. It's very rare, we know as humans, if you're a follower of Christ, to resist temptation, we know that it's very rare that temptation, the, the allure of sin and, and the tempting that's happening goes away after one resistance. It keeps coming and it keeps coming. Look at verse 10 where it said, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Day after 
day. It was relentless. We know, we know how difficult a situation like this would be to resist. Some of us have been in similar, if not same situation, and we haven't resisted. If it, weren't, if it hasn't been a physical giving in to temptation, we certainly know how hard it is to resist mentally, emotionally, with our thought lives, with our feelings. We know, we feel, we sense every single day the barrage that is coming at us of sexual temptation. We know that it is one of the very primary, if not most, ways in which Satan seeks to destroy the church. And it's been that way, it's certainly true now, but it's been that way from the very beginning. This is no different in Joseph's life. We, we know, we know what pornography is doing to people who are seeking to walk with Jesus. In my 13 years of doing campus ministry, from 2002 to 2015, it became almost completely every young man I met with was battling addiction to pornography. And it's only gotten worse. You may say, well, at least it's not happening to the women. Well, bad news there too. Most recent studies show that young women uh, below the age of 25 and into, back into the teenage years, eight out of 10 are looking at pornography on a regular basis. The temptation seems overwhelming and irresistible such that it feels like there is no way, there is no way I can resist this. It's too strong. It's too alluring. Sex addiction is a real thing that comes with it, chemical reactions in the brain and dopamine hits and all the things that come with it is certainly not just a spiritual matter, but it's not less than that. And it's ripping people away from walking with Jesus and from the church. It was no different in Joseph's day. It just presented differently. The allurement, the temptation was the same. So how did he resist? I mean, if it's day after day, and he's stuck, by the way. He can't leave. Right? He can't just go, I'm not coming back to Potiphar's house anymore. He's a slave to Potiphar. He's his master. Potiphar's his master. He can't not be there. So he's coming every day and he's seeking to do the work that even though it's not where he wants to be, it's where God's put him to be. And yet this is happening every single day. How in the world did he resist? Here's the third observation from this text. The presence of God. The presence of God is the power of Joseph. Which to put it into the context for us, the presence of God is the power of his people. His presence is our power. The, the text keeps telling us that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with, was with Joseph. When, when another is with us, we are compelled to do things and display uncommon behavior. Left unto ourselves, there's no way that we would resist. But we have God with us. Joseph had God with him. It wasn't his power, Joseph's power. It was God's power. 
Joseph, we watch Joseph do two things in this text. First, he notices, he, he admits, he realizes, and even verbalizes the offense of sin. He recognizes the offense of sin. In other words, he, he knows, and he starts in verse 8 talking about how, hey, look, I can't do this because Potiphar trusts me. And he knows that, that his sin, were he to give in and partake with Potiphar's wife, he knows that his sin would be against Potiphar, a man who has entrusted his whole household to Joseph. And he knows that there would be horizontal consequences and application to his sin. But where he lands and what he states is his ultimate offense is he says in verse 9, listen to it, he says at the end of verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's expressing the same thing David expressed after killing Uriah so that he could sleep with Uriah's wife. And David, realizing his sin once he's been called out on it, in Psalm 51, he's expressing his repentance and his sorrow. And what does he say? He says, against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. And it doesn't mean that he didn't sin against Uriah or anybody else. Yes, it had horizontal implications and, and consequences. But he's saying that ultimately sin is against God. God has been nothing but good and gracious and kind and redemptive and loving towards me. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And so my sin is ultimately against him. And so we see Joseph say that. In other words, part of his resistance to Potiphar's wife is understanding that through the presence of God who is with him, he's also enlightened to the fact that God is the one who is most offended by my sin. But then watch what he does. He believes correctly by realizing that his sin is against God. That's belief. But then he acts. He moves. There's action. Joseph takes action to escape temptation. He eventually says, i got to get out of here. On one side of the job, one, one part of the equation, it's his job. He's got to be there every single day. But when it gets to the point where it's unbearable, where she's grabbed hold of him and she's pulling him in, she's not letting him get away, what does he do? He flees, and he flees with such aggression that the outer part of his wardrobe, of his dress, this outer tunic comes off into her hands. And he doesn't even stop and go, I'm going to need that back before I get out of here. But his, his intention to flee was so strong that he says, whatever, and he bolts. And he shows us, we see right here in this text, that we don't, one of the primary ways through, through God with us and in us, one of the primary ways that we resist temptation is not by lingering with the temptation, not by dabbling with the temptation, but by fleeing from it. Just, I, I know we know what flee means, but just listen to this. Here's some ways in which it's described in the dictionary. Run away, run off, run for it, make a run for it, dash, take flight, be gone, make off, take off. Take to one's heels, make a break for it, bolt, beat a hasty retreat, make a quick exit, make one's escape, get away. Far too often we give into temptation because our posture with temptation is to linger with it and think we won't get bitten by it. To dabble as if we're on the edge of the Grand Canyon and just walking the edge, dabbling and, and thinking, well, I'm not going to fall. Instead of fleeing from that edge, fleeing from the temptation to even linger with it. And, and of course, again, in this context, the application is primarily with sexual temptation, but it's any temptation. 
It's the temptation to how we might be prompted, tempted to, to, to speak in such a way that would be sinful. That includes what we type, what we post, how we respond to people. What does fleeing look like in that context? I'm so tempted to just spout off in anger at you, to put you in your place, to tell you what an idiot you are. Fleeing looks like I'm not going to do that. I'm going to run away from that temptation, and I'm going to take 24 hours. And ask the Lord to make my heart right before I respond, if I respond at all. Fleeing in any context, not just sexual temptation, in any context, what does that look like? And the question becomes, am I fleeing on a consistent basis? Another way to say it is this. In my walk with Jesus, does fleeing temptation mark me? Is that a mark of my practice with the Lord? Or do I sit with it way too long? Another super practical application is this. Rachel and I would be the first to admit that we fall into this all the time. Get in bed together at night. We we lay there next to each other looking at our phones. Super practical application. Put the phone down. Put the phone down, go to sleep. Temptation is birthed in idle minds and idle hands. Get busy with something that glorifies God. And you'll watch temptation dissipate. There's a story that I heard told in college. I think it's true. Made an impact on me. Maybe it happened at one point. But I heard a story of a college student who, with his girlfriend, had recently studied this text and 1 Corinthians 6 where it says flee sexual immorality. He and his girlfriend were making out and becoming too hot and heavy and this was on the forefront of his mind, and so he just looked at her and said, I'll explain later, and ran out. (laughs) He literally fled. He took it seriously. I gotta get out of here before temptation takes a hold of me. How are you actively seeking to run away from temptation and into the presence of the Lord? The presence of God, here's the last thing I want you to note. The presence of God is the power of his people in any and every circumstance. In any and every circumstance. One might think, well, God will surely reward Joseph for resisting, for not giving in to Potiphar's wife. He did the right thing. He walked in righteousness. Surely God will reward him. And and circumstantially, the opposite happens. Because what does she do? She lies, she deceives, she blackmails. She tells a story that's not true. Potiphar, in his anger, throws Joseph in jail. (laughs) So you go, wow, he did the right thing. And in immediate consequences, got punished. The Christian life, don't miss this. You got to hear this. The Christian life can be challenging because walking in righteousness to the glory of God isn't always met with favorable circumstances. In fact, Jesus promises us that most of the time it won't be. Listen, the person, the person who is set on obedience to God, the person who is set on obedience to God isn't focused on the immediate, but the eternal. If we get focused on the immediate, 
will lose energy to keep obeying. Why? Because sin is like chocolate-covered dog food. (laughs) Thickly coated chocolate-covered dog food. It looks so good. It looks so good. In the first several bites that we take of it, it's just chocolate. And we go, this is everything that I thought it would be. So we keep going back to it. And we keep going back to it. And the deeper we sink our teeth spiritually into it, we start getting to what it's really made of. And we start digesting what we're not supposed to digest. And it's not nourishing us. It's slowly killing us. And if we wait for the immediate gratification, most of the time sin's going give to give us that with a chocolate layer. But if, we are, if our eyes are fixed not on what is seen but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporal but what is unseen is eternal, then we begin to go, this is not good for me. I'm not created for this. I won't be nourished from this. This does not bring life. And we flee. person who is set on obedience to God is not focused on the immediate but the eternal. Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said it's a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Let me be clear. The power for us to resist temptation is Christ in us. You know, in Joseph's story, In Joseph's story, it was God is with him. On this side of the cross, it gets more explicit. It gets more specific. It's not just that God is with us. It's that God dwells within us. Spirit of Christ himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us. He is our power. Listen to Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So picture this. The sinless one, the one who is tempted in every way that we are, I mean, it's hard to wrap our minds around. We even doubt that, right? We even go, really? But yes, tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Where is he? Well, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but where's his spirit? Holy Spirit of God, in his people. Meaning the sinless one who resisted every temptation and dwells you if your faith is in him. You have the very power of Christ within you to do what only he can do through you. The presence of another compels us to display uncommon behavior. The presence of that other one is Christ himself for the follower of Christ. Think of it this way. You probably saw this week, if you might have tuned in live, LeBron James broke the scoring record, all-time scoring record in the NBA. It's a big deal, right, if you follow that kind of thing. But imagine real quickly here that You had the ability, the access to LeBron James such that for three straight years, you got to do life with him every day, all day. 
You got to be with him in his house. And the perk of it is that he taught you every day everything he knows about basketball, how to play it, all the fundamentals, all the tricks and trades, every aspect of basketball that he knows, he, he instructs you on that. Now, what would the end result be? Well, the end result would be that by the end of three years, you would be better at basketball than you've ever been. And you, you could play basketball probably much better than you did to begin with. But you would still be very, very far, very far from being anything like LeBron James. No, no offense. But what if, in some mysterious way, he didn't only instruct you and teach you for three years, but after you left his house, once you were away from him, his ability, his power, as it were, indwelt you. So you don't just know the things he's taught, but you actually have his ability in you. Jesus made a promise to the disciples that was just astonishing. He said, it's better for you that I go, because if I don't go, then the helper won't come. The helper is the Holy Spirit. And then he makes this promise that when the helper comes, you'll do things even greater than what I've done. Friends, listen, if you know Jesus, if you believed upon him as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the one true Messiah and Lord, he dwells within you such that the power of God, the presence of God, the presence of Jesus in you, the sinless one who resisted every temptation, has given his ability to you. Temptation does not have to win the day. Sin is not irresistible, even though everything that it promises feels that way. It's not. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let me close with this. I've used this illustration a lot over the years as well. It's always good to come back to it. In the 8th century B.C., there was a story written that we still tell today. It was called Homer's Odyssey. The short of it is this. The main character is Odysseus, and Odysseus is on a journey, a long journey. And on this journey, he has to pass through what's called the Narrows, and no one's ever survived through the Narrows. Why? Because it's filled on each side in this very narrow strip with sirens, Sirens are these angelic female creatures that are so beautiful and their song that they sing is so, so alluring that no captain on his ship has ever passed through without wrecking his ship on the rocks that they sit upon. Once they're wrecked on the rocks, the sirens devour them because they're not who they say they are. They allure you in and then they devour you. And so Odysseus, knowing what was coming, being warned of this these narrows, what does he do? Well, he instructs his men to put wax in their ears to where they can't hear the songs and to look straight ahead to where they can't see them. But what he tells them to do with him is he says, blindfold me and tie me to the mast of the ship. And no matter how much I scream and cry and beg to be cut loose so that I can go to them, don't let me. Tie me all the tighter. And so Odysseus and his men do that. They don't hear the song. Odysseus does. He cries and screams and longs to be let go. They don't let him. And they pass through all the while gritting his teeth, surviving, longing to go to them. In the third century B.C., there was an addendum written to this story, and it's the story of Jason. Jason, likewise, is on a journey, and he and his men also have to pass through the Narrows. And he knows as well, having been forewarned of what's coming, that the siren's song is too strong. You can't resist it. 
But he has a different approach. His approach is not to stuff ears with wax and tie himself to the mast. His approach is to call for Orpheus. Orpheus is the greatest musician in all the land, and Orpheus plays the lyre and the harp and the flute better than anyone else. Makes glorious music, and he brings Orpheus aboard before they make their way towards the Narrows. And as they approach the Narrows, before they begin hearing the song of the sirens, he points to Orpheus, and he simply says, play your song. Play it louder than you've ever played it. They pass through the Narrows, so fixated on the song of Orpheus, they don't ever even hear the song of the sirens. They're not lured left or right. They're so focused on a better melody. You see, sin and temptation is like the sirens. It promises so much, but ultimately devours us. And our approach, so much of the time with temptation, is like Odysseus, is it not? We want to hear it. We want to listen to the voice. We love the chocolate-covered outer layer of it. But we tie ourselves to the mast of good religious activity and performance. And our hearts really want to go to the sirens, but we know, I can't do that, I can't do that. We just grit our teeth and we survive. But you know, with Jason and his men, they didn't just survive, they thrived through the narrows because the ears were tuned to a better song. And so what do we do as believers? We don't tie ourselves, as it were, to the mast of performance and religiosity and I've got to be better and try and be good. It's, no, no, no. I'm tuning my ears to the beauty of the song of the gospel of Jesus. And like the scriptures tell me, I'm fixing my eyes on him, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that his joy becomes my joy, so that as I pass through the narrows of this life and sin and all of its alluring songs is coming at me, I'm hearing a better song. I'm seeing a more beautiful reality of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And yes, I will still catch tunes here and there of those sirens in my life, but ultimately there's a joy in saying no, not an obligation. Because the joy of Christ in me is better. Joseph resisted Potiphar's wife because Christ was with him. We too resist the sirens and the Potiphar wife and all the other ways in which we might say it, but we resist the temptation of sin through Christ in us. The presence of another compels us to do extraordinary things in righteousness to the glory of God. Father, would you do that work in us? Father, my heart is heavy for those who are here, either in person or online today, and they're They are absolutely being devoured by the sirens of sin. Some are sexually addicted, feel no way out. Others are addicted to substances and feel no way out. Others are trapped in their cycle of anger and feel no way out. Or whatever it may be, there are so many of us here right now who have been just beaten on the shores of temptation and sin. So, oh Jesus, would you play your song in our ears? Would you open our eyes to see your glory, your beauty, and would you remind us that no temptation has seized us in which you do not provide an escape? And that through Christ in us, he who is greater 
in us is greater than he is in the world. Give us hope. Give us strength. Renew us. Revive us. Awaken us. Make us like Joseph, yes. Even more, O oh God, make us like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.